What's up? Welcome to Bow Down, the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Tress. Uh, thank you, guys. I uh, appreciate you. Uh, I appreciate being up here. Chris, thank you for your words. Yes, we, we have spent a lot of time in this, this passage uh, with me, Chris, and um, Jeremy uh, in the back. Jeremy also is going to be planning a church. Um, it's amazing to watch and see what God is doing here. Um, and it's amazing. Me and Chris were just talking about how um, I've, I was here before, uh, a while ago, 2004 to 2007, and now God's brought us back here. Um, and what he's doing is just awesome. So um, last week we started the book of Ruth. And so we're going to jump right back into it. Uh, the reason I'm up here is to, to keep Chris on track because last week he only got through one verse. We were supposed to go through 14 verses last week. If you're following with the journaling, you know that. So I'm trying to keep him on track and continue to push him towards staying on track with that journaling. All right. So, so don't get frustrated with the journaling. We're going to uh, try to do better. All right. Um, so let's pray real quick and let's jump right into the, into the text. Uh, God, you are worthy and you are awesome and you are lovely and we're so thankful uh, to be here in your presence today. We're thankful to be able to come and to hear from you, God. God, may it not be my words, but may it be your words spoken through me, God. May your word come alive this morning to challenge us and encourage us, Father, into what you're leading us to. We pray this in your name. Amen. So this morning as we jump into uh, Ruth, we're going to do Ruth 1, uh, verses 1 through 14. What we're really going to talk through is leadership, all right? How many of y'all, when you were a little kid, ever played Father Leader? Raise your hand. Father leader, right? Simple game, right? What do you do? Father leader. Really simple, right? It's not complicated. You can play with any kids, old or young, right? That leader's not put there for any specific reason, right? Not because of their character or because of anything like that. It's just whoever gets picked to be the leader, right? Y'all ever remember when you were back in school, probably elementary school, and the teacher always picked somebody to lead the class down the hallway, right? I don't know about you, but I always wanted to be that. I always wanted to be the leader. Like, you just felt so empowered in that moment, right? But the teacher wasn't picking you necessarily because you were good. You might not get picked if you had done something that day, but really they're just giving every kid an opportunity to lead, right? So we understand that sometimes we follow leaders not because they're qualified, not because of who they are, not because of their character. We just follow them simply because of the position that they're in, right? Y'all following me with that? So sometimes the leaders that are put in our lives, we're not following them because uh, we want to be like them. We're just following them basically because they're put in that leadership position. So think through that as we read through. We're going to read through um, one, verses 1 through 14, and we're going to talk about um, some leadership things this morning. So uh, verse 1, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he, his wife, and his two sons. So if you were here last week, Chris kind of covered all of that, kind of broke into more of the historical and gave you kind of an overview uh, of the book of Ruth. This was a, a time when judges ruled, so there weren't kings in place, there were judges in place um, at this time, 400 years of, of that and uh, some of it was good, some of it was bad, okay? We all understand we've been under good leadership. Sometimes we've been under bad leadership. We learn from both, but that was a, a time that leadership wasn't that great. And the la even the last uh, verse in Judges, uh, Judges 21-25 says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. You ever been in a situation where everybody did right in their own eyes? What does it create? Chaos, right? Right? I was a youth pastor for 16 years. You put a bunch of teenagers in a room with no leader, 
No instructions, that's what you get. You get chaos. You start to see who people really are. You start to, you know, it's kind of like Hunger Games or something. You start to see just craziness come out, right? All right? There was a famine in the land. And this is the promised land where God had said it would be flowing with milk and honey, but there's a famine, right? And that famine is coming because of disobedience, right? And so uh, the, two, the, the two sons and the wife of this, and I don't know, it's always interesting how God, like, he paints a picture and then he goes into details. So he tells you about it, but then he goes into details about who these people are, right? Verse 2, it says, the name of the man who was Elimelech and the name of his wife was Naomi and the names of the two sons were Malon and Kilion. And they were Ephratites from Bethlehem and Judah. And they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The names of one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died. So the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her two uh, with her daughter-in-laws, in, in to return to uh, the country of Moab, return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to his mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. As you have dealt with the dead and with me, the Lord grant you, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices, and they wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back. My daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So that's 1 through 14. So I'm going to cover 1 through 7. Chris is going to come up and, and cover 8 through 14. So like I said, Chris had already covered some of the, the context of this as we jump into it. And so we come to a man named Elimelech, all right? And we look at him and, and what's going on. So it's important to know what's going on, that there's already bad leadership over him, right? And sometimes we understand that when we have bad leadership over us, it creates some bad leadership qualities in us. And so that's what we're going to go into with Elimelech. And so he, Elimelech, decided that, you know, the time had come where there was famine in the land. And so things got tough. And so he had a decision to make. We understand. Uh, and so if you guys are taking notes, I'm just going to give you a couple points about leadership. All right. And the first one is this. A leader is tested in tough times. Right. So Elimelech, if you think about him, he's got a wife, he's got kids to take care of. A famine comes into the land and he's got a decision to make on what to do. And what does he decide? He decides to take his family out of the promised land. He decides to take his family and lead them out of the land that God had given them because he thinks that taking them out of there and not only leaving, but going to 
the country of Moab, right, which has a long history of between Moab and Israel, and he decides that that's the best choice for them. How many of y'all ever been in a situation where you think the grass is going to be greener on the other side when you make a decision, right? Not always true, right? Sometimes you step into that decision, you think the grass is going to be greener, and then you realize, oh, man, I really messed that up, right? So Elimelech decides, he thinks that the grass is going to be greener on the other side, and so he decides to take his family into the land that God had already warned them about. A leader is tested in tough times. You go to the New Testament, you see in Acts chapter 16 when Paul and Silas are arrested, right, and they're in jail, right? Paul is faced with a tough decision. Now, I've never been to jail. I don't plan on going to jail. Now, I'm leaving today to go to Virginia for Thanksgiving, and I'm hoping that in my rush to get there, I don't go so far over the speed limit that a police officer might think that I need to be locked up in jail, but that's really the only thing that I could see that I would get locked up for, right? But hopefully that doesn't happen today. I've never been in jail. I've never been in that situation. But if I went to jail, it would, it would most likely be for something that I did that I deserved to be there, but Paul didn't deserve to be there, right? He was preaching the gospel, and so he got locked up, and he had a choice to make. I can either sit here and just have a pity party, right, and just, you know, complain about everything, or I can do what? I can praise God. And what did they do? They praised God. They worshiped. They sang. And the impact that it had on everybody that was around them. A leader is tested in tough times. And so Elimelech, you know, we don't always like to, I don't want to necessarily say that um, because if you make a bad decision, you step out of God's will, that he's going to end your life. But let's just understand that Elimelech decided to do things that he knew was against what God had for him, and what, did, what happened to him? He ended up dying, right? Now, I'm not going to go out on a limb and say you do something against God and you're going to die today, but I'm also not going to go out on a limb and say that God can't do that to you, right? I'm not going to put him in a box, but it's understanding that our choices, everything that we do has consequences. Everything that we do has consequences. Now, if you're in here today, raise your hand if you feel like you're a leader. Raise your hand. If you're a leader in here, raise your hand. Okay, good, good. Some of y'all didn't raise your hand. And what I want to challenge you guys with today is this. There's two things I want you to continually be thinking about as we talk about leadership. The first one is, who are you following? Right, who are you following? And what characteristics does that, do the, that person have? And the second thing is this, what is, uh, what is God calling you to lead? Because I truly believe that every single person in this room is a leader. God has called you to lead in some way, shape, or form. You might be like, well, I'm not up there. I'm not a pastor. I don't lead this. I don't lead that. But if you have a family, you're a leader, right? You can be a leader at work. You can be a leader at school. You can be a leader on a sports team that you're on. There's a lot of ways that you can lead. You can lead here by being a volunteer, right? God is calling all of us to be leaders, so it's important that we understand what it takes to be a good leader and what we should be looking for in the leaders that, that we follow. I would put Elimelech on the side of not a great leader. He had bad leadership over him, and he made a bad decision. It was a tough time, and he made a decision to step out. Now, it does say that the word sojourn means that he just was, was wanting to leave for a, a short amount of time. But as we read the text, we understand that he never was able to come back. He died in the land of Moab right? There was a, a professor 
uh, at Liberty that always used to say um, when talking about things of sin, he always said, sin will take you where you don't want to go and keep you there longer than you want to stay, right? Sin will take you to places you don't really want to go to, and it'll keep you there longer than you want to stay. And I believe that's what happened with Elimelech. He made a decision, right? And how many of us have made decisions just like that where we, we compromise? We think, oh, it's not going to be a big deal. Oh, I can step out just for a little bit. Oh, it's okay. It's not a big deal. I'll, I'll, I'll make my way back. But that time is never promised. So uh, number two, a leader's decision will impact others, both good and bad. As we continue to read through the text, we see that not only did Elimelech pass away, but then his sons take on Moabite wives, which was directly against what God had already told them. And because of that, right, because of Elimelech's bad leadership, his sons now are in a position to make bad decisions, right, and it just continues to go on. The enemy is good. He doesn't, like, put these temptations in front of us that are completely blatant. It's little. It's little compromises here a little compromise there, right? And they just continue to add up and add up and add up and just continue to take you farther away until you get to a point where you look up and you don't realize how far away you are from God. It's just little compromises over and over again. As a father, this spoke to me because I have two sons that are looking up to me for leadership. And every decision that I make has an impact on their life and what they're going to do, right? I can't just be a dad that that tells them things but doesn't spend time with them. I can't be a dad that tells them they should act one way and I act another. I can't tell them that they need to, how important a relationship with God is, but they don't see that being a priority in my own life. It's got to be modeled every single day. Do I mess it up? Yeah, more times than I like to admit. And they can both tell you that, right? But it's over and over remembering that the decisions I make that are going to have an impact to other. Our decision to move to Florida, my oldest son would say that was a great decision. He loves it. Youngest son, nah, I want to go back to Georgia. Decisions that I make have an impact on the people around me. So both sons decide to take Moabite wives, right? And I, like I said, I believe that's a, that's a direct effect of Elimelech and his decisions. Now he put his kids in a compromising situation, and now they're making compromising uh, decisions. And in verse 5, it says that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. A leader's choices have consequences. No matter where you are, church, outside of church, every single leader, their choices have consequences. My kids are Washington football fans because of me, and they have to, somebody said, wow, <laughs> wow. Now, the consequences that they have to face from being fans, right, have been great, and that's because of me, right? So my decisions, right, as a leader, my choices, they have consequences. In verse 6, we kind of see this shift. So we've been talking about Elimelech and, and kind of bad leadership on his part and what happens. But we start to see Naomi arise, right? Because just because you have bad, bad leaderships around you doesn't mean you can't turn into a good leader, 
Just because you have bad leadership around you doesn't mean you can't become a great leader. Sometimes you learn the most from bad leadership. That is a direct quote from Pastor Chris. He's told me that as long as I've known him. Sometimes you can learn more from bad leadership than good. And in verse 6, it says that she, Naomi, heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. And so she's lost her husband. She's lost both of her sons. She's left with these daughters-in-law who are foreigners, right? They're, They're from Moab, and she is not. But yet she hears in the field that God is doing something great back where she was from. And so I want to say that to say this to you. God will find you wherever you go. No matter how far you, you stray from God, no matter how far you, you start to roam away from him, he will come and find you wherever you are. That's the God that we serve. He will kick down walls. He will climb mountains. He will do whatever it takes to get to you. And he will send a message to the fields in Moab, right, a country that is completely against the things of God to get Naomi's attention, to draw her back to her country. And so a word can change the, the complete trajectory of your life. One word, right? If I had asked you guys to think about one word in your childhood, right, that somebody said to you that was negative, you could probably come up with something, right? Because words are powerful, and words can change your life. When I was in college, the only reason I went to, to the college I went to was to play football. And that was what I had worked on my whole high school career was to to get to this point where I could go to college, play college football, and then eventually play on Sundays in the NFL. Well, as you can see, because it's 11.04 on a Sunday, I didn't make it to the NFL, all right? I don't have to rush off stage because I got to go get ready for a game. That's not where God took me, right? But I went to this, to, to Liberty University. I played football. And when I got there, the coach was like, yeah, sorry, you know, we'll have scholarship money for you, but if you work really, really hard, then maybe we'll have some money available for you after the season. You know, it's all based on what you do. So that was all the motivation that I needed. That was my focus. So I came in and I worked hard and I ran and I lifted and I did everything that was expected to me and then some because I knew what was, what was put in front of me and I knew where I wanted to go. And so I did that. And so that first, my first year, my freshman year, we had 11 games. I played in 10 of them. I started eight of them. And I don't tell you that because I'm great. I tell you because God was working a plan. I achieved what I wanted to, to start at a D1 college playing college football. But I'd never been more depressed and lost in my whole life. And at the end of the season, I'm struggling. I don't know what, why. God, why was I, like, why was I struggling so hard uh, this season, why was I depressed? Why was I frustrated, right? And so um, at the end of the season, we had a team. I, I met with my position coach. And I'm going in there expecting him to say all these good things about me and that I've possibly earned a scholarship because I played so hard. I was starting over guys that had been there a couple years that were on uh, scholarship. I started over freshmen that were on scholarship. So I was feeling pretty good going into that meeting. And in that meeting, he sat me down and he said this. He said, you're not going to play anymore the rest of your time here at Liberty, so you, you might as well just give up. He said, we're going to bring in new recruits that are bigger, stronger, and faster than you, and you're probably never going to see the field again. 
was like, wow, that definitely (laughs) took a turn that I wasn't expecting. And so I left and went on break, um, went back home, and I just started praying. I'm like, God, I don't understand this. At first I was angry. I'm like, you know what, I'm going to show them. You can't tell me what I'm going to do and what I'm not going to do. I'm going to show them. I'm going to work even harder. And that day when I get on that field and I'm starting, I'm going to look right at that coach and say, I told you, right? That was my attitude. But the more that break went on, God just started to to soften my heart. And, And the word that he gave me was this. He said, your time with football is up. You have devoted too much of your life and your time and your talent to that. And I've got something different for you. So I came back in January. I went to my coach's office and I said, I quit. And I walked out and I was lost. What am I supposed to do now, God? I'm in class. Only time reason I went to class was it was a means to an end. I had to go to class to play football. <laughs> so now I have, don't have football. I have class. I have nothing. And it was that week that somebody came up to me and said, hey, man, we got this ministry team I, I think you might want to try out for. It's a basketball team. We travel every weekend to different youth groups. We hang out with teenagers every single weekend. And so I was like, I got nothing else to do. So I went and I tried out. I was the only person that showed up. <laughs> so they had, to, they had to put me on the team. Even if I was bad, they had to put me because nobody else came out. And from that moment, God stirred a passion in me for, for teenagers. And I went every single weekend to different churches, different youth groups, different events, preaching the gospel to teenagers. A word is powerful. And it can change your life. And in this word, it changed for her. A leader is moved to action, right? You can't just hear it. She heard it in a field, right? So a leader listens when God speaks, but also a leader is moved to action. Verse 7, she departed, right? She heard it. She knew it. She departed. And this wasn't just a departing where she could just go back and everything was going to be great for her. She left at a very high status as a, as a, a woman married, to, uh, married, she had two kids, and now she's going back without a husband, without sons to take care of her. She's old. So social status from here to here. The cost of returning was high, but God was calling her. Great leaders don't have to make you follow, right? You want to follow. 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 says this, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ, Paul speaking, right? And we're going to start to see how Naomi's life completely changed, even though she was under battered leadership, even though she was in a land that she didn't know, right? She, followed, she heard God's voice, she followed, and she came back. A leader is tested in tough times. A leader's decisions impact others, both good and bad. A leader's choices have consequences. A leader listens when God speaks, and a leader is moved to action. So I bring up the same questions to you. Who are you following, and who is God calling you to lead? Pastor Chris, I know my time is is, is a little bit slow, but if you don't know Pastor Chris, get to know him. Incredible leader. I don't know. I've never been under a pastor that will get up from the pulpit and apologize for anything that they've done. Never seen that before in my life. I've never seen a pastor give so many opportunities to other people to grow, right? I've never heard a pastor get up and say, go follow this church planner to his church. Never heard a pastor do that, right? 
So understand when we talk about leadership, we're all sitting under a great leader. If you have questions about leadership, he's a great person to be able to reach out to. Because God is calling all of y'all to lead in some way, shape, or form. And I hope that when you step out of here today that you've been challenged in that area. Don't doubt yourself. Right? Pastor Chris is going to hit that in the, the second part of this passage with Naomi. Don't doubt yourself. God has a calling for you. But a leader can't do anything out, out of all of this without Christ. So the most important thing is that is the heart of that leader. And Pastor Chris is going to get up and talk to you guys about the heart uh, of a leader. I, um, <clears throat> I'd like you to write down these four things, if you will, all right? Because as Bill did a great job really talking about like the importance of leadership and what you do matters and your decisions, they affect people. And, and, and are you listening? Are you hearing? Are you, are you taking these steps of faith when you do hear? The foundation of leadership is a person's heart. It's a person's heart. It's, it's not what you do. It's who you are that matters. It's who you are that matters. And are you Christ-like in your character? Are you Christ-like in your leadership? It is said that there's four C's of leadership. Um, go ahead and, and write these down. Number one is character. Character. And I would say Christ-like character, but I didn't make the four C's up. I'm stealing them from somebody. I, I don't know who I'm stealing them from, or I'd give them credit. The second C is competent. They're competent. They're competent. They actually can uh, bring value to an organization or a team. The third step is chemistry. They get along well with others. And the fourth, C, is calling. They're actually called to do this. Like, this is what I'm created to do. This is who I am. I get this joy, this satisfaction. Now, when you line all these things up, character and calling, competence and chemistry, man, which one is the most important? Well, for me, the one that's the most important is character. Christ-like character, and here's why. Because I've seen people filled with competence, but then they lack character, and they become disqualified. They become disqualified. Hey, listen, the news today that we watch on TV, they're very, very competent. They can keep us glued to the screen, right? But what do they lack? Character. Fake news. Because they're more concerned with their agenda and their narrative than giving it to you real. Because they want ratings. So you can be competent but lack character, then you're disqualified. The, third, the, 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 the other thing is chemistry. Listen, you're not going to do well on a team. You're not going to do well on a team if you do not have character because people around you are not going to trust you. They're going to think you're a hypocrite. That you don't walk it like you talk it. So character, 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 and then calling. I've seen a lot of people's callings hindered because they lack character. And we've seen that, unfortunately, even in the church, where church leaders have fallen to sexual sin. They fall into a misappropriation of funds. And so it's character, character, character. As we look at verse 8 here, 
I want you to see the character of Naomi just kind of come out because she is someone that we should model our life around, is Naomi, that we would move and ask God to give us her heart. Verse 8, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. I want you to highlight deal kindly, please, because that is the word hesed, hesed. And by the way, Jeremy, where are you at, Jeremy? Go ahead and stand up real quick. Jeremy's another church planner, okay, who will be speaking. He's also uh, going through this text with us as we're working together on these sermons. But Jeremy, this is your point, my man. See, when I steal from somebody I know I stole from, I give them credit. Hesed, it means this, mercy performed by a more powerful party to benefit the weaker. Mercy performed by a more powerful party to benefit the weaker. It is translated in the Bible, steadfast love, mercy, loving kindness. In fact, this word is so deep, it's used over 246 times in the Old Testament, but there is multiple words that describe this word. This is the hesed of God, the steadfast love of the Lord, the hesed of God, the mercy of the Lord, the tenderness of the Lord, the grace, the kindness, the compassion. All of these words come from the word hesed. And this word is usually used in a way where it is spoken from God, who is the most powerful, speaking to us, who is the ones who are weak. It describes how God moved towards us. He moves towards us in his hesed love. And so Naomi was standing in the hesed love of God here in verse 8. She wants what's best for these girls. Her heart was so sincere towards them. May we be the kind of people that have that kind of love and affection for one another. May the hesed love of God dwell in every home over Thanksgiving. Some of us need it more than others. God, I need your hesed love just to make it so I don't throw a turkey leg at my... anyway. We'll get to bitterness here in a moment. By the way, verse 8 is kind of a declaration. It's kind of a benediction, if you will, where she is wanting to send them out with the blessings of God. May the Lord deal kindly, hesed. May his hesed love be with you as you have dealt with me and the dead. Verse 9, may the Lord grant that you may find rest. You want to highlight that, find rest, find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Now, here is a question that I would like you to jot down, please. Are your prayers just prayers, or are you willing to be part of the answer? Are your prayers just prayers, or are you willing to be part of the answer? Listen to what it says in James chapter 2, verse 15. It says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, and be filled, that's a declaration, that's a benediction, if you will, but you, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Also... 
faith by itself, if it does not have works, is what? It's dead. Church, are we going to be the kind of people that just pray lofty things without being willing to do those things? This is when you become like Jesus. He, Romans 8, intercedes on our behalf, but he was also the one who says, Dad, I will go and you can kill me and pour out your wrath upon my life because not only am I praying for them in word, but I'm gonna go ahead and die for them indeed. Church, are we like that? Or are we like James 2, 15 through 17? Faith without works is dead. Yeah, we're praying for you. God, I pray for revival in this nation, but yet you don't do anything in your nation. Church, think about that. I believe that Naomi, and, and, and I'd like you to keep your place in verse one, in, in chapter one here. I want you to turn over to Ruth chapter three. Ruth chapter 3, verse 1. I want you to look at the example of Ruth. Then, or excuse me, the example of Naomi. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you? So, should I not seek rest for you that it may be well with you? You see that there in 3.1? Now go back over to, to, to one. Nine, and what did I have you highlight? She's praying that she would find rest. You see the example Naomi lays out for us? Not only is she praying that, but then we see her in verse three. You know what? I'm just not gonna pray that anymore. I'm gonna find that for you. I am going to be the answer to what I prayed. And when we have a church that rises up in that reality where we are willing to do what we're praying for, you will definitely see revival. The reason why we don't see revival is because we have a church, by and large, that prays for something we don't want to do. God, help me to find rest right now. Guys, this is the problem with the church of Jesus Christ. May we learn from Naomi and be a people that just don't talk and pray, but we're unwilling to do because that kind of faith is what? It's dead. Faith without works is dead. Let's finish up verse 9. Then she kissed them, Ruth 1, 9. And they lifted up their voices and they wept. Highlight, kissed, and wept. In your experience in the church of Jesus Christ, do you ever experience kissing and weeping? Now, I'm not talking about romantic, okay? Let's keep mature here. But there's an aspect where if somebody leaves and moves away, like there's real tears when they go. Like we are just so saddened and we are so going to miss you. 
Do you experience that in the body of Christ? Understand, when you look at Acts chapter 20, and Paul was leaving Ephesus after being there three years, it says, and let me read the verse, Acts 20, 37, there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul, and they kissed him. So he was leaving after being there for three years, and they were weeping, and they were kissing Paul because they were so sad he was going. So he experienced that in the church because of who he was, his character, his nature, his Christ-likeness. Some of us, if we leave church, nobody's even going to know. Nobody's even going to know. Because we're not connected in any way. Also, with this Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.4, we just went through the book of Timothy, but it says this, I remember your tears, I long to see you, that I may be filled with joy. There was such love that he had for Timothy, that he wept with him, and he was filled with joy. He longed to be with Timothy. Who in your life do you, you know, some of us are married, and we're like, oh, yeah, I got that. But get out of your marriage relationship real quick. Now, not literally. Don't do that. God hates divorce. So here's the deal. There, there's certain relationships, yeah, right? But outside of that, man, is there anybody that you so long for in the body that if they left, you would weep and cry? Are you that kind of person where, man, if you left, bowed down, and God called you somewhere else, is that people would weep and cry? If not, listen, we can learn this from Naomi because of how she lived her life. I know I have a lot of Urban Youth staff here, a lot of Bow Down staff. Success when working with young people is this, is if God would someday call you to leave them, those kids would cry. Because you have become like a mother or a father to them. It's not the fancy messages. It's not the great doctrine that you taught. It is the love of Christ that would cause them to say, no, I need you. And that is success, not numbers. We go for sons and daughters here. Sons and daughters what Naomi was, was about. Verse 10, Ruth chapter 1. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. So they're talking back, okay? They're not talking back. Verse 11, but Naomi said, turn back my daughters. Look, look at that. There's an ownership, if you will, responsibility, a love, a depth of relationship where they've, they, 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 she's calling them daughters. Why will you go with me yet? I have I have son have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So, 
I want you to understand, it was to Naomi's benefit that both Ruth and Orpah stayed, that they both stayed with her. Why? Because she was too old to work. How do we know that? Because we see in chapter 2 and chapter 3, she doesn't go glean in the fields. She sends Ruth to do it. She also can't have kids anymore, so she was at that age where she couldn't work. So she's a widow, poor and destitute, but guess what she has in these two girls? Helpers. And so she's being honest, pushing them away, even when they want to go. I don't know about you, but hey, you know what? I kind of want some people working for me. You hear what I'm saying, church? Like, like, listen, so Bill Rodriguez is going to go plant a church, right? And his wife, Sarah, Sarah, raise your hand, please. She's like the keyboard queen, okay? Beautiful voice, heaven's open when she sings. So when we send Bill, we're not sending Sarah. She's staying here because she adds value to our worship team. Okay, so I'm just letting you know. So, Bill, I started without a worship leader. Bill can start without one, too. It's not, it's not fair, man. I was leading worship. No, I'm kidding. We, the church wouldn't be going still. But seriously, it is going to hurt. Bow down when Bill leaves, when Sarah leaves. It would hurt bow down. Like, we will get worse as a church. But guess what, guys? What does the gospel call us to do? Not live for us, but we say, God, what is Bill and Sarah's purpose? What did you create them for? And I want to spend my life to see that happen. How can I join you, God, in what you're doing in their life because it's not about me? Ruth operated like that as a leader. If you are in Christ, that's how you're supposed to operate, and I'm supposed to operate. How can I wash this person's feet so that they can become who God has created them to be and fulfill the purpose that you have for them? That's the mission statement of Urban Youth Impact. We love, equip, and empower these inner city youth to read their God-given purpose. It's what we do. It's what we spend ourselves for. And God is wanting to raise up leaders like that. Are you one of them? It's who we are as a church. True leadership isn't asking this question, what's in it for me? But how can I die so that you may find life? That's what Christ asks. And that's what leadership is. Let me, let me give you my definition. It's a poor man's definition right now. How can I die so that others around me can live? It's a mic drop, ain't that, Thomas? If it was good, it wasn't for me. I want you to understand some things as far as application is concerned here. Verse 13. Look at how wounded Ruth was. In fact, I want you to highlight the part of verse 13. It says, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter for me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So she believed that God's hand was against her. She believed that. In fact, let's go down to Ruth 120, please. Ruth 120. It gives you more insight of what this girl was dealing with. And she said to them, don't call me Naomi. Remember last week, Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara. Mara means bitter. So she changed her name from pleasant to bitter. 
Like, does she have issues? Yeah, right? But so do you and I, okay? Hallelujah. For the Almighty has dealt bitterly. So now she's blaming God. God, how could you? God, where were you? Why did you allow this to happen? So she has judgments against God. I went away full. The Lord has brought, back, brought me back empty. She didn't blame her husband. She didn't blame the enemy either. A lot of people say, where was God? Well, God, there's also a devil. And there's also, again, people have been given authority. And when you and I don't obey, obey God, the consequences not only affect us, but they affect others also. Why call me Naomi? Verse 21. The Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. So you can see she is being honest about her own hurt. She is wounded and bitter, and she's upset with God. She's judging God. She's blaming God. I don't know if anybody can relate to that, but I sure can. And not only can I relate to that, Will, if you could go ahead and play this video today, we're going to hear someone else who's, who's walked through some stuff. Um, and by the way, these videos are online. I encourage you to shoot them out because somebody needs to hear this. Will, you got that video? Go ahead, brother. Growing up, I had a couple of things that happened and took place in my life where, you know, just heartache and brokenness took place. And when I was two years old, my parents divorced. And so naturally, there are consequences of that. And um, they ended up getting married to other people. And so then we're trying to blend families and there can be issues here and there. So there was heartaches, you know, elementary school, trying to figure that out, blending families. And that led to a stage of rebellion in middle school where I started just hanging out with the wrong crowds. I ended up getting arrested for drugs and of course that was life-shattering for me and my family and then from there I calmed down a little bit with that but then I just filled that gap with seeking after attention from men um, I used that to I think just fill the lack that I was feeling at the time also numb the pain the real deep issues that I was going through one of my fondest memories from childhood had to do with my cousin Aaron him and I were kind of attached at the hip really close. He was my protector, if you will. Um, he always had this unconditional love for me. My sophomore year of college, I transferred to Palm Beach Atlantic University, and that is really where I started to see my relationship with Christ take off. Um, about two months there, I was in a relationship. My boyfriend broke up with me, and that led me to that breaking point of just rededicating my life to Christ. From there, I was praying more. I was reading scripture. I was going to worship nights with my friends. That, from this whole point in my life, that was the closest I had ever been with God. So in 2012, um, I received a call from my mom. I was working at a Christian camp, and she called me and let me know that my cousin Aaron was missing. There were rumors that um, he was at a party the night before. There was an altercation between um, him and two other males. One of the males our family actually knew. One of my uncles mentored him for a while. Um, we all cheered on the same varsity co-ed cheerleading team in high school as well. And so this just left us all feeling very confused. What took place? This wasn't like Aaron to just go missing, not returning people's calls. So, of course, all of us were filled with fear. The next day, um, my supervisor and one of my closest friends pulled me aside. And they let me know that my mother had called and they found Aaron's body. 
Um, when they found them, they had learned that in the altercation, he was beaten to unconsciousness. And from there, the two males took him to a field and burned his body to get rid of the evidence. After I heard the news of Aaron passing away, I was just filled with a lot of anger, resentment, bitterness, um, need for revenge. I was angry at the people that stood by at the party that didn't call the cops. They didn't step in to help. I was obviously angry, angry at the two guys who committed the crime. And then also, after I rededicated my life to Christ and began to grow closer to him, questions started arising in me of, okay, if God's our protector, where was he when this was happening to Aaron? And also, if he knows from the beginning from the end, why didn't he prevent this from happening? So I was just really angry at God as well. As I allowed anger to come in, I went like a dog returns to its vomit, back into a lot of things that I had done before. Um, I experimented with drugs here and there that summer and also just getting involved with men again, trying to numb the pain, trying to escape reality, and it really got me nowhere. It just invited more destruction and chaos into my life. About two and a half years later, they finally had Aaron's trial, and I was driving um, Central Florida early one morning, and um, as I was driving, I, again, was filled with anger, just wishing the death penalty on these guys. Like, I wanted the worst to happen to them because of what they did to my cousin. And so I'm driving and have, you know, Christian music on. Lauren Daigle's song, How Can It Be, comes on. And it starts by saying, um, I'm guilty. I'm ashamed of what I've done, what I've become. My hands are dirty. How can I lift them up to the Holy One? And then it goes into the chorus and it's just talking about how Christ pleads our cause he writes our wrongs um, he breaks our chains he's overcame and he gave us life to give me mine how can it be and God just broke my heart because first of all out of thankfulness and gratefulness all the things that I had opened myself up to that summer the downhill spiral that I went into he still wanted me back he still was going to forgive me for all of that so just breaking and crying over all of that thanking him for his forgiveness. And then from there, he gently led me into a time of forgiving my cousin's uh, murderers. And I was able to forgive and release them very specifically for taking my cousin, for the, the brutality of what they did. And then I was led into a time of even praying that, that God would meet them in the jail cells and that they would turn their lives over to him, that they would experience his love and be radically changed. And it was just an amazing time between me and the Lord. Um, of really softening my heart and breaking off that unforgiveness, bitterness, resentment, and anger. So there are two things that I feel like really resonated with me in walking through forgiveness with my cousin's murderers. And the first is that if you're seeking healing while you're having unforgiveness in your heart, it's not going to go very far. I had opened myself up to destruction and more pain and more wounding by allowing anger, unforgiveness, resentment, bitterness, all those things take place in my life. I was so seeking healing from Christ after that, but this was, I was being bound by the unforgiveness. And so when I was able to walk through that, I was then released into the freedom that he so wanted to give me. The other thing that when I look back at that moment is that I am so thankful for his sacrifice. He died for me when I was in my sins, and he died knowing that I would still sin. And so I value that so much. How can I keep that from someone else? His grace and his mercy for my life, that was not paid at a cheap cost. So for me to take that into my own hands and judge someone else, it goes against what he did on the cross, and I don't ever want to be in that place again.
Amen. Amen. So listen, if you're, if you're taking note, Naomi was ministering out of her own hurt and her own pain. She was honest about where she was. She felt like, God, where are you? Your hand is against me. And listen, that doesn't offend God. He's okay with your bad doctrine for a season. He understands the why you do what you do. People don't. People don't. But God does. And so if you're here today and you are walking with some hurt and some pain, at the end of this message, we're going to have prayer partners here that want to lay hands on you, want to pray for you. If there's anything that you need, by the way, Katie, um, she leads our uh, prayer ministry uh, for inner healing. And so you can go sit with her and she can help you walk through any pain that you've been through, because not only has she uh, dealt with some stuff like, man, if somebody burns one of my family members. But she's forgiven and she's found the freedom and she can lead you into that. And so, you know, in this text, we see Naomi. She was hurting. She was hurting. She was hurting. And yet God was still using her to minister to these women. They wanted to be with her because they felt the love of God, the hesed of God coming through her. So much so, let's read this last verse and then we're done. Verse 14. And, and worship team and prayer partners, you can come, come on up, please. Verse 14. Then they lifted up their voices and they wept again and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung. I want you to highlight that word clung. That word clung in the, in the Hebrew is a, it's a word that means to stick like glue, to stick like glue. That there was so much love for Naomi that Ruth wanted to stick to her like glue. There was a passion and a love coming out of Naomi that Ruth just responded with a clinging. When we look at this cross behind us, we can understand when, with Ruth's perspective, there was really no reason for Ruth to go with Naomi. She had no benefits. She was poor. She was, um, she, she had nothing to offer. She was going to bring them back into a land where they would be foreigners and potentially mistreated. So there was no reason for Ruth to cling. But it was because of this love and affection that was in Naomi, in despite her bitterness, that love came forward and it touched Ruth in such a way where she clung to Naomi. Uh, Will, if you could throw up Thor real quick for me. I want you to understand, <laughs> it's my wife here. She, for some reason, got into Marvel. She wants to watch those movies now. Anyway, 
When she married me, there was no reason for her to cling to me. I had no benefits. I was driving a broken down car with a rusty roof. I was making $10,000 a year. I was living in a, anyway. Why would she, in fact, she actually prayed, God, I don't want to marry Chris because I don't want to be poor. So not only was I not Thor, I was poor. (laughs) I had no benefits, but what I did have, what I did have was the Hesed love of God that she knew. She knew. She knew, and she was touched, just like these girls were touched. And really, it's not Chris. It's Christ in Chris. And it's not you. It's going to be Christ in you. That is the hope of glory. And so as we're talking about Christ-like character today, as we're talking about this story today, man, just set your heart before the Lord right now. And let's go ahead and bow your heads. And I want you to understand It wasn't those nails on the cross that made Jesus cling to the cross. It was his love for you. We are poor, we're depraved, we have nothing to offer, but yet Jesus clings to each one of us. When we try to leave him like the 99, he, uh, like the sheep, one sheep that go away, he leaves the 99 and he goes after us. God is so faithful, he is so good. He clings to us when we're bitter, when we're angry, when we're mad at him, when we believe wrong things about him. He continues to cling to us when we have bad ways of thinking or doctrine, if you will. He still is consumed with a passion for us and the cross represents the clinging of God to us who brought no value to him he loves you because he loves you and it was the joy you were the joy that was in his heart as he despised the shame of the cross and he embraced the cross so he could have you and me and his family. And he is clinging to us in such a way. He has said, my hesed, my steadfast love, it's never going to fail. I'm always going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm with you always. I call myself Emmanuel. I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. And he's coming after you. He's running after you because he loves you. But will you cling to him? He's already clinging to you. Will you cling to him with everything? And if you've never made a decision to give your life to Jesus today and to just leave it all like Ruth left it all in Moab and just cling to Christ, I pray that you would do that today. Christ is calling. The cross is calling. God demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And he loves each and every one of you. And he's saying, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, I will come in and I will sup. I will cling. I will be one with you. And this is the reason behind the cross, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus because he wanted sons and daughters, not because we bring anything to the table. 
and he brings us to his table and his banner over us is love. And so, Holy Spirit of God, as we sing and adore you, come and do in this place what only you can do. Draw people to Jesus. We ask for surrender. And we pray for the saints, character and Christ-likeness so that we will be like a Naomi walking in the Hesed love of God. And Lord, also those that are bitter, those that are holding unforgiveness, God, I pray, I pray, as Katie set the example and her testimony cries out, follow me as I follow Christ, I pray for the strength of freedom and the power of God to come upon any roots of bitterness and unforgiveness over anyone's life. May you get rid of it today. God is calling you to leave it at the foot of the cross today and receive healing. Help us, God, to sing to you now with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for visiting us today. Make sure to check us out online at www.bowdownchurch.com. Dot com.